0: The Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered all over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he had drunk some of his wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, God.
1: Yes, that was the word of the Lord, an odd word of the Lord, was it not? There's three things I want us to notice today. Oh, before that. The curse returns. Um, Abby did some graphics for me. I, I like the title, The Return of the Curse. Feels a bit Star Wars, doesn't it? That's this passage, The Curse Returns. I had a few other options for a title, Broken Trust, God's Great Rescue, but we settled on The Curse Returns. All right, three things I want us to notice today. Firstly, this story is far more complex than it appears. Yes, the story is literal. You know, I take a literal view of the scriptures, particularly of um, the Genesis stories, but it's not something we need to be divided over. Did Noah live 950 years? I think he did. Yeah, a simple scientific explanation for that is that the genetics were more pure in those days. It doesn't really matter though. There's much to learn about ourselves from this passage. The second thing I want us to notice here is the fruit of sin is slavery. When we speak of slavery in this passage, we're not talking about literal slavery, the abomination that was ended by Christians some generations ago, or at least legally ended. We know there is still slavery in the world today, sadly. But what we're talking about is slavery in a sense that it, it binds us and limits our future choices. Third thing I want us to notice here is that Noah is not Jesus. It's easy to make a Jesus of Noah, but it'd be a mistake. There are certainly connections with the Gospels, connections with the salvation story of the cross, but we don't need to necessarily go there. We'll talk about that in a moment. How about we pray and then we're going to unpack this big story? It's a big one. Yeah, it doesn't seem like much. I've had fun this week. Not really, sort of. Lord, we thank you for your great love. Open our hearts and minds to what you would have us here today, what you would want us to know, And Lord Jesus, use this text to bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in children's programs, we tend to focus on the joy of these Genesis stories, the good garden, the blessing of family, people walking faithfully with the Lord, justice, and ultimately how a good and gracious God continually reaches out a hand of forgiveness, a loving hand of rescue to us, his people. Yet with this focus, I do wonder if we're doing ourselves a disservice. I wonder if we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore the uglier parts of these scriptures, of the Genesis story. And I wonder if we do ourselves a disservice if we ignore the ugly parts of our own story, a sin or two or three. Sins that we sweep under the carpet. Perhaps there's a story in our own lives that's just too painful to deal with. Perhaps pride has convinced us that it's not our fault. Or perhaps the world has convinced us that it's not sin at all. Yet, my friends, the scriptures are clear. The wages of sin is death. Sin that remains unforgiven turns into bitterness. Sin that remains unforgiven bears the fruit of bitterness that we become oblivious to, a bitterness that no one else can ignore. But this isn't even the worst of it. When we ignore our sin, the truth of who we really are, this is related to our passage, we have no stomach, no desire, no need for God's great rescue. And the Bible seems arbitrary, ancient, distant. God's grace, God's forgiveness becomes a mere platitude. And the devil gets exactly what he wants. Yet another human being taken captive to self. Another human being living the curse. A human being that might not say out loud, but in their hearts is a belief that I don't need God. I know best. I am God. Is this what's happening with Ham and Noah? Is this what's happening in today's story of is this Noah's epic fall from grace? Ham's sharing his father's nakedness? Is this just another manifestation of this curse that began in the garden? Is this unforgiveness? Is this an unforgiven sin that takes root in Ham's life and bears the fruit of bitterness across the generations to come? Or is all of this connected? I mean, only a short while ago, Noah, God proclaimed Noah as righteous. Noah was right before God. The verse before our passage today read this. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Remember, the flood has happened. The animals marched in two by two and all that stuff is done. They're on dry land now. And God has said, I am giving you a sign. God's speaking of the rainbow. It's as if he's blessing Noah, blessing his descendants, blessing the whole earth in the wake of this horrible and terrible destruction. And then we have this story, a son stumbling across his naked, drunken father, a mistake that brings about a curse that stretches across the generations. At best, this appears to be just an odd story, doesn't it? Perhaps something we Christians should be embarrassed about. Not just Christians, Jewish people as well, because it's an Old Testament story out of the Hebrew Bible. And at the worst, it just appears arbitrary, kind of pointless, mean, silly, prehistoric. That is, until we see this story in the big picture, until we see its place in the picture of God's great rescue. And I'm not talking about the flood. I'm talking about Jesus and the cross. We better open up our text because it's going to help us understand. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 said this. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Just put... Put the scientific mind to one side. We'll come back to that and just see this as the story that it is. This is following on from God's promise not to destroy evil the way he destroyed it in the flood. It's a promise that's become tangible in this rainbow, a display that's to remind us it is a seed of hope. It's a new chance, a new opportunity, a sign of God's latest rescue. But sadly, Noah is not Jesus. And this latest rescue is doomed to fail. Verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and, they, and laid uncovered inside his tent. Noah, the so-called righteous one, is on dry land for but a moment. First thing he does is plant a vineyard, ferments some wine, gets drunk. I mean seriously mate, If we would learnt nothing? But no, this is not a story about Noah getting drunk. Now to prove this I could draw on the book of Judges or the Psalms where it's suggested that wine cheers the heart. That's my experience after the kids get home from school. Wine alleviates the pain of the curse. It's from the Psalms as well. Perhaps that's a reference to this story. So a bit of drink, little nakedness, some rest, it's no big deal, is it? Or equally, we could draw on the wisdom of the Proverbs, how intoxication is expressed as a mocker, a brawler, and those who give in to strong drink are, at best, considered to be unwise. And again, this is made clear by Paul in Romans 13 when he writes famously, let us behave decently. That was the message for Nineveh, if you remember the kids' story. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. For Paul, all of these things are clearly connected as they are. But again, the story is not about Noah getting drunk. It's actually not about the son's simple, perhaps honest mistake. The story is about the continued fall of humanity and our complete inability to rescue Ourselves. Self help is in fact an oxymoron. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. That's it. Surely this is a trivial offense. I mean, my kids have seen me naked. I mean, you try, you know, having a shower and there's the toilet's in the same room as the bathroom and they're banging on the toilet. The toilet. What are you going to do? It happens. And on that note, my youngest son, Sam, who's not here, the other day, you know, he'd been to the beach, he's got, Dad. Now, because Sam's going through puberty, he's got abs and stuff, he goes, Dad, I've got a six-pack now, check it out. You've got a two-pack. I'm just like, thanks, Sam. And I was telling this story to one of the guys yesterday from the morning service, and he goes, well, half your luck, I've got the box it came in. my children of course not but ethical standards were somewhat different in Noah's day for them this was a great shame a breach of the family ethic every family has lines that must not be crossed clearly this is one of them but still it just seems a bit much I mean to curse not Ham the one the son who saw him naked but to curse the generations to come his eldest son Canaan Surely it's got to be the biggest overreaction of all time. Surely it does. This can't be so. Something must more must be going on here. And guess what? A whole stack of ink has been spilled on this exact subject. What's really going on? Why such a harsh response from Noah? Some have said that what really happened here was that Ham... Castrated Noah. And this is justified because Noah, in his hundreds of years that were remained, never had more children. Maybe that's what's going on. Some have claimed that Ham took advantage of his mother and that Canaan is actually the offspring of this unholy union. And that explains why the, the, the sin flowed down the generations. Others have suggested that he took advantage of his father. And what Plays out is the trajectory that Paul in Romans explains for those who engage in such acts. But seriously, we don't know. We don't know. The text is silent on the matter. What we have is what we read. And we do ourselves no favour by going down these rabbit holes. That could be a bit of fun, a bit of light reading. Except for one thing, there is a little bit more on this topic. The Bible does speak to the uncovering in Leviticus, another book from the Hebrew Bible from our Old Testament. And this is Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. It says this, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Now, that's putting, God says it that way. It's a command from God. He says, I am the Lord. The thing before it is the unholy thing to do. And I am the Lord because God is holy. So that's why he's saying that, this uncovered nakedness is unholy, I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. It's interesting how the nakedness of the father is connected to the nakedness of the mother. So no wonder people have gone down those rabbit holes, but what's important here is this. Leviticus goes on to forbid and define uncovering one's relatives, Father's wife, sister, half-blooded, full-blooded steps, brother's wife, it goes on and on, the daughter-in-law, all of this stuff. And this word uncovering is not normally translated as that. It's normally translated for us in English as sexual relations. Clearly, that's what the text is speaking to here. Sexual relations. That's what's forbidden. Relations with close relatives is forbidden and unholy. And it's the same word used of Noah's situation. Although Noah was already uncovered, it's the same root word. And I only bring this up to add weight to the seriousness of the offence. I want us to get our heads into the ethic of these people. We don't know what happened, but we do know it was serious. And we do know that it was unholy. And we know a few other things too. We know that Ham made a mockery of his father. We know that Ham abused the sanctity of the family unit. And we know that his brothers clearly thought what he did was wrong. And that's the telltale, isn't it? Unlike Ham, they, in verse 23, Sham and Japheth took the garment, laid it across their shoulders, walked backwards, covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. Theirs was an act of kindness. Not dissimilar to God, clothing Adam and Eve after their disobedience, clothing Adam and Eve before sending them into the world. And on that topic of Adam and Eve, isn't this this, this just repeating itself? The return of the curse. After all, the first thing that Adam and Eve noticed after eating the fruit, what was the first thing they noticed? Nakedness. No, it wasn't stand back. I'm not sure how big this thing's going to get. Yeah, I did just say that out loud. Oh, come on. That was a joke. Oh, oh my goodness. Loosen up, people. <laughs> it was nakedness. What came next was a curse upon them. What came next was a curse upon them, the snake, their offspring. And that's what happens here. Now we awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. Notice that the son had done something to him. It wasn't just an accidental seeing him naked, a kind of accidental telling others. Something in Ham's actions was unwelcome, unwarranted, and unholy. And then Noah said in verse 25, Cursed be Canaan. There it is. What have I done? Have I missed a slide? oh, It's on the same slide. There we are. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. He will be to his brothers. It's interesting that Noah's speaking to Ham. Sorry, it's interesting that Noah's not speaking to Ham. He's the one who offended him, but he's not speaking to him. He's speaking to his offspring. Noah is, in fact, prophesying about Han's descendants, Canaan and then those collectively known as the Canaanites, they will be doomed to repeat the sin of their father Ham. Even though the sin of Ham is not clear to us, what is clear is that he acted with a self-righteous pride. He acted in a way that was to usurp or to to, to kind of take power from his father, take leadership from his father and everything he stands for. and this sin, like all sins against the father, pun intended, results in a kind of self-enslavement, one that has passed down the generations. And we know that this sin will pass down. We know that Noah's oracle, that's what we call what his words are, this prophecy, we know it comes true. For the Canaanites, they will be defeated and enslaved many times throughout what is history for us but future for Ham and his family. I hope we're starting to see this as anything but a simple story about a trivial offence. I hope we're starting to see that this is a serious matter of sin, an unholy sin, in fact. And I hope we're starting to see that the sin that we ignore, the sin that remains unforgiven in our lives, it begins to enslave us. And in this way, Ham... He binds himself, he binds his offspring to the disobedience and the shame. While the brothers, they take a different path. And the result for them is in verse 26. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slaves of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. What do we learn? What do we discover? First things first, the story is far more complex than it appears. Getting our, our minds into the heads of these deeply agricultural people, these deeply modest people, it's tricky. It takes a bit of work. Letting go of the baggage around questions about how true the literal flood was, Did God really make the earth in six days? Did Noah really live for 950 years? It's difficult to let go of that stuff. But guess what? It's all secondary. The Bible is a history book secondary. The primary purpose is to detail a story, to detail a relationship, a relationship that results in a rescue, a hand reaching out to every one of us through Christ almost dragging us, if you will, out of this place of self-slavery, which is the consequence of sin. And on that note, the fruit of sin is self-slavery. If nakedness represents the knowledge of good and evil, that was the first thing that Adam and Eve recognised after they disobeyed God in the garden. If nakedness represents this knowledge of good and evil, and if we choose evil... By not respecting the nakedness, by not respecting the power of choice that God has permitted us, well, we become slaves to that path, just like Ham, just like his son, Cain, and all of those to follow. In other words, if we fail to choose the holy, then we commit ourselves to a form of slavery. Noah didn't put Ham's son into slavery. Sin did that. And we, when we find ourselves as slaves to our desires, our temptations, our sins, when this happens, it's no one else's fault but our own. For some of us, this message might be a bit heavy. The job of a preacher is to disturb the comfortable, but to comfort the disturbed. Do you want to know something? I actually think, that wasn't really a question. I'm going to say it anyway. I actually think a great many people will be cheering their way to hell. I actually think a great many people will. The nakedness of hell will be so attractive. It'll be like an oasis at the end of the desert that they've made of their own lives. When they see this oasis, they will cheer and they will cheer they will see it as a place where every temptation and desire, all the things that haven't been permitted in this life or unable to live out are going to be okay and permitted and received. They're actually going to think they're on their way to heaven. Has anyone seen kind of artist's depictions of the wide road to destruction and the narrow road to redemption? Have you seen the artist pictures? They're, I've got one stuck in my head, and it's the wide road to destruction. It's full of people heading off to hell, I suppose, with their carts and their horses and their donkeys, and they're having a good old time, really, singing songs, just enjoying themselves. There's a whole stack of people on their way, but then you've got this other picture of the narrow path, and it's someone's kind of walking, climbing a hill. It's a little, you know, mountain path, and their their knees are and there's suffering and it's hard. I get it now. The people on the wide road actually think they're on their way to heaven. That is until the doors of hell are slammed shut behind them and the oasis that was in front of them vanishes because it was just a mirage and then a great, great chasm blocks their return. In that moment, they will know truth for the first time. Paul nails this in Romans 6 when he says this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, we are all a slave to something or someone or even self. You are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is where the rubber hits the road. Lastly, Noah's not Jesus. Almost done. The rescue of humanity through a sinful human being was always doomed to fail. I don't care how good you think you are. You like me, you're a sinner. You fall short of the glory of God. Is This not why we're here. This is a hospital for sinners. This is why we're here. This place, this very gathering, is the result, is the fruit of this great rescue that I keep mentioning. It's a rescue that relies not on broken human beings, not on great preaching or terrible jokes that nobody laughs at, or comfy seats, or air conditioning, or good coffee, or water slides in the kids' programs, although that would be cool. It relies on the pure and righteous Son of God, on Jesus and his cross. His death, unlike the nakedness of Noah, when we look upon the death of Christ, when we start to realise that his thorns in his crown crushing upon his skull are our sins, when we see our sin crushing in upon Jesus, our hearts begin to change. The scales fall from our eyes. Our hearts are softened. The logical destination of our disobedience is replaced with forgiveness and a glorious future. In Christ, we are restored. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we will be resurrected on the last day. And we will find our place in his presence for eternity do you imagine the presence of God? I tried to write down some thoughts, and I just couldn't write anything. I just got a blank page. So now I'm just winging it. How would you explain the presence of God to be in the presence of pure love? And I'm just like, how do you explain that? The best I can do is probably, I love my wife, i do anything for her. I love my kids, do anything for them. Is God a bit like that to me? A little bit, yeah, but much more. I remember a conversation I had this week with a gentleman, and um, it was one of those kind of stoic blokes, and I know he had a baby just recently. And I just leant into that story a little bit, just said, you know, isn't it, isn't it a wonderful blessing from God? And then he started to cry. I mean, what a baby. No, <laughs> I started to cry too, right? I'm serious. This is, this is just that taste of love that idea that I could give of myself so unreservably to this little child that just poops and cries, <laughs> right? That's kind of how God sees us, isn't it? Imagine being in the presence of a parent, a father, who just cries at our sin. He's just with us, forgiving us, holding us, protecting us. I don't know, I have no words. Really. But it certainly will be a wonderful thing. Sins forgiven, bitterness uprooted, and the chains of death broken. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love. What a great rescue. You delivered your people. You sent Christ to be our saviour. Help us to see that story, to understand the relationship and to receive forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.